take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Matthew, and then turn back a couple of books. That's the fast way to find Zechariah. We're in this flyover series, and we're nearing a pretty significant and momentous uh, time, because we've gone through the, all the books of the Old Testament, but two, Zechariah and Malachi. The next Sunday night, we'll finish the Old Testament. It's kind of a big deal. Um, I got to preach most of those. Pastor Pine was the expert on Song of Solomon. I've been looking forward to saying that all week. Um, he, he did Song of Solomon. Um, Pastor Bresna did Jeremiah in, well, that was a pretty hard act to follow, if you remember that. And uh, in the first person narrative, which was brave and, 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 and done well. And T. Reynolds Hall did Zephaniah, and that was a night we'll remember for a long time. And the rest of them I got to do. So what a... What a um, just a real neat privilege to get to go through the entire Old Testament from way high up. Now, let me explain a little bit about why we're doing a flyover, because we're going to launch right into the New Testament. We're going to fly over the New Testament. I'll tell you where this kind of started with me, a couple of things. One, um, I got a little copy. I don't particularly, the NIV isn't my favorite version, although it's a very readable version. And I got, a, I, somebody gave me a little NIV New Testament one year, a number of years ago. It was a nice little New Testament. I'd never read the NIV in the New Testament and so, through. And so I decided that what I would do is I would read through the entire New Testament in the NIV in a week. Now I was speaking at Lake Ann that week and I was alone, kind of, you know, the kids were all engaged in camp, and I was alone a number of years ago. And there is a nice speaker's quarters there. There's like a rocker out on the porch and all kinds of cool places to read. So here's what I did for the whole week is I preached, I hung out with kids, and then whenever there weren't kids to hang out with, I would take that little New Testament, and I would go someplace and I would read. I read through the entire New Testament in one week, and I saw things I had never seen. Now, listen carefully when, when I, when I, as, I, as I tell you, I think that a survey, sometimes we call them Bible surveys. You ever heard of that? Old Testament survey, New Testament survey, right? That's, a, that's one way of saying the same thing. A flyover is a way to get a perspective on a bit of biblical material that you cannot get when you're up close. You need to do flyovers or surveys if you want to get the scope of the land. So if you want to be a good student then you want to, I just commend to you a quick reading of the Bible, a flyover of the Bible. And when I say we're going to do a flyover of the Bible, that doesn't mean that we take the Bible lightly. We take the Bible with absolute seriousness. We want to understand the basic message. And so another way of saying this is, is to say it like this. If you want to understand any part of the Bible, you've got to understand the context that's the biggest law of hermeneutics for understanding the Bible. Context, context, context. And the flyover, or the survey, is the way that you get the context of the entire Bible or the context of the entire book. It, it ensures that you're not going to wrench things out of context and impose meaning on a passage that's not there. It's very important that you do this. And so without any apology, we're going to launch right into a flyover of the New Testament. And I would just challenge you to invite your friends, neighbors, relatives, aunts, uncles, dogs, cats, mice. Um, again, that was just to get your attention. Don't bring your animals to church. But invite people that, people that love the Bible. And you know, what I'll do, and, and you know, it may not seem like it, but um, when I do a flyover of an Old Testament book, I spend hours and hours studying the book. And um, there are, no doubt, better teachers of the Bible than I, but I don't know anybody who loves it any more than I do or wants to open up the treasures and the riches of God's Word to people and apply it any more than I do. And so I'm committed to this and to you. And it's an act of love to feed the sheep. And and, Now, let me tell you another piece of this. Um, Another piece of this was, I'm thinking about you. And I'm thinking about the, the little window of my life, and, and it's like as we're thinking about Bud, it just seems almost sad and violent to say things like Bud Hall Memorial. It just doesn't, it just doesn't seem right. It seems very sad. But it makes us think, it makes us think, how long do we have to serve the Lord? And I want to take whatever time I have to serve the Lord and put it to the best use I can. 
And I will tell you that being in this pulpit right here, you probably understand, is one of the greatest privileges of my life. I've had, uh, I love, loved every group that I've gotten a chance to minister to. But I feel like, you know, I've had a number of years of experience and learning things and making mistakes and seeking forgiveness and, and studying. And people in other churches have paid a lot of money for me to go to study in other places, which is very humbling, you know. And then, you know, I, I want to do my best for you. So I was in a house one night. I want to call it the parsonage. It's not technically a parsonage, but it's what I kind of think. I was in a house one night, and I was thinking about you all, and I was thinking about how do I teach the people? What do they need? What would God, what would God want me to teach them in these precious you know, hours and so forth that we have? And I thought, well, you know, I want to have this knowledge of the Bible so I can go to the place in the Bible that the people need the most at the time that they need it. And I thought, I know what I'll do. I will study the whole Bible again with the people in mind, with the people of evangel in mind. I'll study the whole Bible cover to cover again. And that way I'll know right where to go on the divine menu to fix a meal for the sheep. I'll know right where to go on the divine menu. And I'll say, I know that's what they need, and this is what they need. Now, he's better at that than I am. His in his sovereign way. You see this? It's true like with the songs that we sing. The songs that were sung today were picked out a while ago. And yet, didn't they minister to us now, given circumstances that happened yesterday? And the Word of God, you know, God in his sovereign mercy to us, he arranges for us to go to a certain passage of the Bible, and we go, wow, that's, how did he know? That was exactly what I needed. And so what I did was I spent a number of my days off at home in the house reading through a survey of the entire Bible so that I could get in my mind currently and fresh what is the message of each of the books of the Bible and how, do the, how does the message fit together? Now, you know my fascination with story. I'm unapologetically fascinated with stories. This is like a part of my name that will not ever change. And why is that? Because Jesus gave us stories, and the Bible is primarily stories. Huge part of the Bible is stories. So if you understand how stories work, you understand a lot about how God communicated. Old Testament narrative, New Testament narrative, you don't think of stories as something light and harmless and, oh yeah, that's what we get out of the way. We take it down to Sunday school. We give those little children stories. But upstairs with the big people, we're serious about the Bible. Don't think like that. You'd be very ignorant and foolish if you thought that way. That's not true. So God in, has given us these stories that are sacred. It's almost as like I can hear the voice of God saying, don't make my stories into Aesop's fables and nursery rhymes and so forth. These are the stories of God, and they have weight to them. Do you see what I'm saying? And so obviously you're here, so you, you believe that has some value. And so as we understand, as we go through, there's a great overarching story, the modern word that's frequently used now. It's kind of popular to use meta-narrative, the big story. Now, postmoderns, and liberal, you know, Christians, they don't believe in an overarching story. Postmoderns don't believe in, in a story that ties everything together. But Christians do. Christians see everything as one unbroken story. The Bible is to be seen as one unbroken story. And that is why it is really vital as a church. As I began a ministry here, I wanted to begin with a flyover. We did a flyover, the prophetic if you remember early on, and we did the flyover here of the Old Testament, and we're almost finished. I feel like it's kind of a cool accomplishment. And then we're going to jump into the New Testament. It's very exciting to, to fly over the New Testament, so I hope you get to be a part of each one. If you can't, and sometimes you can't, or you travel, or, or, or sometimes you got a Sunday night, and you're, you're tired, and you're weary, and you want to rest, and, and that's why we have the podcast, too. You can also, it's not the same as, as live, but uh, a lot you don't get, of course, but you can also catch up, and maybe you work, and whatever. You can listen to podcasts, and a lot of our members do that, and it's very encouraging to me. And thank you for all of you guys to make a podcast possible. Because that's being used in, 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 neat play, in neat ways. If nothing else, my mother and dad listen to it. And so it's very valuable for that reason to encourage them. And uh, my brother, while I'm talking about it, I have a brother, Nathan, who can get away with saying things to me none of you could ever get away with saying uh, because of his enormous love for me and his devotion to me. And he's very critical and very direct, very sharp. He'll tell me interesting things because he listens to every one of my messages and he'll give me interesting feedback about that. Wouldn't you love to hear and, uh, but it's, it's cool. That's the, way we, that's the way we work. 
Now, and so we have this whole idea then of the flyover. And I, and I spent that like kind of lengthy introduction so that I could keep you on board with me on this flyover thing. It is not a light matter. It is a very serious matter. It's, a, it's, something, it's an expression of my love for you as a pastor to help you see the whole book of God. And if I fail, and I'm not that good at it, and I'm sure I often will, I have gotten your nose into this book. And that was a good thing, right? Even if you kind of didn't get what I said, your, your heart was in the book of God, and you know that's good. And so this is a great thing as a church as we go through. I just challenge you to just hit the reset button as we get to the New Testament now and just try to stay with me in the reading, if at all possible, and read the New Testament. It'll be a little easier to do that. Read the New Testament along with us as we preach through the New Testament in the flyover. And then as the Lord gives us more time, if Jesus doesn't return, and I really hope he does, but if the Lord Jesus tarries his return, and then, then what we're going to do is we're going to go into little, little like shorter passages or smaller you know, books of the Bible and, and do books of the Bible in different series and stuff like that. So that's kind of what I look forward to doing, and I want to talk to you about that. Now, what does a leader do when he sees there's a problem in the organization that he leads or in the church that he leads, in the business that he leads, or in the nation that he leads, what does he do when he sees there's a problem? Let me suggest to you two things that a good leader will do. One thing a good leader will do is he will point out what's not right. He will candidly point out what's not right. He's not afraid of doing that. Good leaders have to point out what's not right. There's a Bible word for that, and it kind of has a bit of a sharp edge to it, but the Bible word for that might be rebuke. And it's a part of what needs to happen when, when, you know, when the organization is off the rails. The, the leader has to say, this is not the way it ought to be. Remember James in the New Testament Church, these things ought not so to be. This is not right. This needs to be changed. The other thing the leader does is, and this is a big part of what a leader does, is he doesn't just leave the people, you know, kind of beat them up and leave them bleeding on the floor. What does he do? He's cast a vision. He paints a picture. He tells a story about what it's supposed to look like. Over here you have, hey, this is not the way God's people are supposed to behave. This is not what God's people are supposed to do. You're not supposed to start a job and leave it half finished. You're not supposed to begin to build the walls and then get intimidated and get involved in building your own houses and stop building the work of God. Shame on you for that. That's not the way it's supposed to be. But on the other hand, he'll say, can you imagine the glistening glory of the temple of God? Can you imagine what it would be like when we can all gather together, you and your children and your children's children, and we can make the rafters ring and the trumpets sing, and, and we can come together and we can worship our God. They, he, he rebukes them and he exhorts them. Now you see that, very interesting, you see that with Haggai and Zechariah. Because they're contemporaries, and Zechariah's prophecy is kind of in the middle of the four uh, oracles of Haggai. And, and one of them is kind of like, it's a little bit like good cop, bad cop, if you will. Um, maybe that's a trivializing of the prophets of God. But one of the prophets kind of says, this is not the way it ought to be. And he gives a message of hope as well. The other prophet says this is not the way it ought to be, but he really gives a big message of hope. Zechariah is the big message of hope guy. These aren't very big, but here we have a comparison. So Haggai is an exhortation. It's more concrete. It's more concise. It talks about present concern. It tells the people, take part. And Haggai is an older activist. Zechariah, his contemporary, his tone is a tone of encouragement more than it is of exhortation. It's more abstract than it is concrete. It's more expanded than concise. It's obviously a lot bigger. As a matter of fact, they call Zechariah the major minor prophet because it's really big. It's the biggest of the, of the minor prophets. And then you have Haggai's emphasis was present concern, but you see in Zechariah a great deal of pointing to the future, and I'm talking way day of the Lord into the future. And this is where Zechariah gets very, very interesting because it is a prophetic book and it points, to, it points to the future for Israel. It points to the first advent of Christ. It points to the second advent of Christ. It gives details about what's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns to the earth in power and great glory in concrete, interesting, fascinating, hair standing up on the back of your neck, heart beating fast detail. Future concern. And he says, take heart. Haggai says, take part. Zechariah says, take heart. Haggai is the older activist. Zechariah is the younger visionary. You can kind of see, in a way, good cop, 
bad cop. Nonetheless, it's just God's way of sending prophets to the people who have the same exhortation to obedience, but they have a different approach in the way that they do it. Both of them are sent by God with oracles from God. And so you ever notice that about people? Some people, like, they take the negative. Some people take the positive. It's usually not a right and wrong thing. It's usually a both-and thing. Again, Zechariah is a contemporary of Haggai, and his prophecies begin in 520 B.C., before Christ. And so this is now post-exile. They're coming, Judah, a, a remnant of Judah is coming back from Babylonian captivity. After 70 years of Babylonian captivity, um, and, and, and this remnant of Judah then is, he's stirring up, uh, Zechariah and Haggai, stirring up the people to rebuild the temple. Zechariah does this with an emphasis on the future glory of the temple and the future glory of the worship of God. This is a call to rebuild the temple, which was abandoned 16 years earlier. The book of Zechariah kind of can be broken down into two sections. And when I say flyover, I fly over the book three or four times in different ways so that you can kind of understand it. Here's one way to fly over it is to break it in two parts. Chapters 1 through 8, chapters 9 through 14. The first eight chapters relate primarily to issues that are contemporary in that time. And so the prophecy is that forth-telling, forth Telling prophecy. You know how we often say prophets foretell and foretell? In this particular case, one through eight is like the current time they're foretelling. He's foretelling. The last six chapters, then, chapters 9 through 14, these focus primarily on the future. That's that foretelling. There are, you can, you can see this, there are eight visions. There are, in chapters one through six, eight visions. They're all night visions and they're full of symbolism and they're all designed to make a an, to encourage the people of god they all end well every one of these visions he gets a vision and he's like ask the angel what does this mean and it always means something good for the future of israel in all of these eight visions in chapters one through six then there are four sermons in chapters seven through eight and these are kind of related to fasting and feasting and some corrections that god had given and there are two burdens and these are kind of really huge, big, apocalyptic, we'll explain that in a minute, burdens that he has that he gives in chapters 9 through 14, and they really do line up on the first and second advents of Christ. So it's pretty interesting stuff. Now this is prophetic literature, and we're talking about eschatological. So we wanted to define our terms just a little bit, and so we'll teach you a couple terms. You probably know these. If you don't, um, I'll, I'll give you kind of definitions because whenever we want to throw these terms around, we want you to understand, you know, you heard that term eschatology. It's a study of last things. Study of last things. When we say eschatology, that's probably a word you want to be familiar with in case somebody uses it because it's a study of last things. Pretty interesting stuff. There's probably not a week that goes by that somebody doesn't come up to me and say, Pastor, when are you going to preach on? And they love, people love to study last things. And that's right, because eschatology is a matter of, hey, you know what people are saying when they say that? Pastor, I need some hope. I need some hope for the future, and I, I want to talk about that. What's going to happen in the future? Well, you got some tonight, because this is eschatology, a study of last things. This has eschatological material in it. It's talking about things that are happening then and things that are going to happen in the future and things that are going to happen in the faraway future. So pretty interesting. There's another term, apocalyptic. Now, in popular language, when we say apocalyptic, what do we mean? We usually mean the end of all things, uh, something that happens that's catastrophic. In popular language, that's what we mean. But that's not what we mean at church. When we're talking apocalyptic, that's the word that's translated revelation. It means unveiling. And it's usually connected with unveiling a mystery which points toward end times or end things. In particular, it's a, it's a reference to a certain kind of literature. We're talking about apocalyptic literature. You're talking about literature that unveils things. And that's the word revelation is what it means. So revelation's unveiling things. It certainly doesn't unveil things about, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It unveils things about Jesus Christ. And it does unveil things about the future. And it unveils things about an understanding of history and the sweep of history in the past and all of that. So that's what apocalyptic means. Eschatology, study of end times or last things particularly. And, and, and uh, apocalyptic is literature. Apocalyptic literature is literature that unveils. And this has got a lot of apocalyptic literature in it. We say messianic, and this is uh, probably obvious, but it's kind of important that when we talk about a messianic psalm or messianic literature, we're talking about something that talks about the Messiah. Now, 
we often can tell messianic literature, and we'll say this kind of again a little bit later on tonight, and the way I'm going, this is going to be like two parts. But anyway, um, when you can tell a passage of Scripture is messianic usually by studying the rest of the Bible and finding that later on it refers to that passage as a reference to Jesus. So the Bible itself defines when a passage is messianic or when it's talking about Jesus. Now we use the term advent, we're talking about arrival or coming, and, you, and again, so when we talk about the first advent, we're talking about when Jesus Christ arrived physically as a baby, his first advent when he appeared or when he arrived or when he came the first time and lived on earth, and then the second advent, obviously when he returns to earth and his feet touch the Mount of Olives and the second advent. There is an aspect of the second advent. It's kind of included in that in the rapture of the church, but that's detail that we'll talk about another time. This is something else that's kind of interesting to me as I study. You know, you talk with people at work, you notice there are people that have different views about end times things. In particular, you kind of say, well, when you have prophetic literature of the Bible and parts of the Bible that are talking about end times things, you, you often want to ask, so where is this and how do I understand this prophecy in terms of time? So I have a prophetic passage. For instance, we're going to have here in Zechariah passage that's, uh, that's prophetic literature. You have it in the book of Daniel, obviously, right? It's amazing prophetic literature in the book of Daniel, apocalyptic literature in the book of Daniel. Where else in the Bible would you have that? A portion of Matthew that we're going to get to, the Olivet Discourse. I'm going to earn my money when we get there because we're going to be studying that. And then, of course, obviously the Revelation is, is that kind of material. It's prophetic material. Now, there are four basic ways of looking at how that prophetic material is the old time. We ascribe to one of these. I think the other three aren't completely, totally right. One is called preterism. You may or may not want to even remember that. But it is kind of interesting. It looks at passages of Scripture that are prophetic and says they were all fulfilled in the past. Let me give you a quick example of this. The book of Revelation, we tend to look at it. I mean, obviously, we're kind of chart people. We tend to look at a lot of Revelation as something that's going to happen in the future. You've had pastors and teachers and Sunday school teachers, and you've taught in your Sunday school classes that much of what is described in Revelation is futuristic. It's going to happen in the future. Preterists don't believe that. Preterists believe, for instance, the book of Revelation, we believe that it was dated about A.D. 90. They believe it was dated A.D. 60, which is really convenient because the fall of Jerusalem was in A.D. 70, and they want to say it all happened in the fall of Jerusalem. So what they want to say is everything you read in the book of Revelation is going to happen in A.D. 70. So it happened in the past, and we're not looking forward to these things happening in the future. The preterists believe that way. We're not preterists, right? Then historicism is, we, and it's a little bit confusing because in a way it's like preterism is looking at fulfillment of biblical prophecy. You look at a passage and say, oh, that happened in the past. Historicism says this is a description of what's currently happening as we look back on it, what happened through history. And so prophecies then describe events taking place in the present at the writing. Historicists, people that look at prophetic literature like that, that's how they would see it. They would just see prophetic literature as something describing what happened in history. Idealism is, and, and here's probably an example of this, it's prophecies seen as symbols of larger ideas or principles. So they look at it, it's kind of timeless, it's kind of vague. I'll give you a quick example. We all do this a little bit, and it's a bit of an error when we do it. There's a bit of truth to it and a bit of error, but let me give you an example. Sometimes we get a little bit frustrated with the book of Revelation, and we're not understand, we don't completely understand where the horns go and where the trumpets go and where the vials go and, and all of that. And so we go, well, we just know it's about Jesus and he wins in the end. You ever heard anybody say that? And that's a lot of fun to say because it's true, you know. Well, I don't know. When I read it, I just know Jesus is the king, and in the end, he wins everything. And that is true. But if you don't believe that there are specific details connected with those signs and symbols and so forth, then you're expressing an idealism in terms of the way that you're looking at that. And that's usually what liberals do. You're really not in very good company when you do that. Here's how we understand prophecies. We see them primarily as future, future to when they were written. Some of them have been fulfilled in the past, but they were future. They were prophecies of something that would be future. And many of these are prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled in the future. That's how we understand. And that's why I say that our kind of people are like chart people. You know what I'm saying? In Fremont, First Baptist Church in Fremont, where I pastored uh, for a number of years, there was an uh, elderly lady in the church that came to my study one day. And we're just talking and having a good time of fellowship. And she said to me, well, did you know in our church we used to have these 
prophecy teachers that would come, and it was fascinating. People would come from all over town. Sometimes 600 people would come every night of the week, and the prophecy teachers, they would bring a big chart, and they would, they would unroll that chart across the front of the church. Does this ever happen here? Yeah, sure. Yeah. And they would unroll that chart across the front of the church, and then they, the, the prophecy teacher would describe all the details of what was happening in the chart. Well, we're kind of... Ch- and you know what she did? She said, I think I can find those charts for you. And sure enough, that lady took me way back into the labyrinth of the back of the church, and she found these and unrolled these charts and showed me these charts. Well, we got PowerPoint now. We have other, way, other means of delivery. But we're still kind of chart people. We still believe that the Bible teaches that there are events that are going to unfold in the future. And they are real space and time events. And they're described in the Bible. And tonight, Zechariah actually describes something that's going to happen someday. A number of things that are going to happen in real space and time, in real place where we've been. It's actually very exciting. So that's just a little bit of a... Passover on some of that, a little commentary on some of that. Let me give you a quick overview of Zechariah. When I say quick, you know, obviously that's a relative term. There's a call to repentance in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Let's look at that. Chapter 1 and verse 2 says, The Lord's been very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. This is what Herod didn't hear. Remember this morning? Herod wanted to talk with... By the way, let me finish my message from this morning. Okay. Herod wanted to talk to Jesus. Herod wanted to talk to John the Baptist. And he talked with John the Baptist. He was interested. He was fascinated. But eventually had him killed because he was run by his wife and his peers and his lusts and all of that. And then, later on, somebody says to Jesus, Herod would really like to talk to you. And Jesus says to him, you tell that old fox, you tell that fox, basically, to paraphrase what Jesus said, he says, you tell that fox, and that's a direct quote, you tell him... He can talk to me when I'm done doing what I'm doing. Another way of saying it was Jesus said, I'll talk to him, I'll stand before him, but not till I'm finished. Old Fox is in the feminine. So it was really kind of, you don't think Jesus had a sense of humor and he was bright? He was bright. He had a sense of humor. And there was an edge on what he told him. Was he talking about Herodias? When he, was he, you vixen? You, you Fox? You female Fox? It's just kind of, don't you admire him? I, I do, yeah. It, it, he wasn't like, oh, you know, he was like, like, walking around with lilies in his hands all the time. Anyway, so Jesus calls this guy out and he goes, I'll talk to him when I'm ready to talk to him. Now finally it says later on, it says, I'm really running amok here tonight, aren't I? I'm on my Sunday morning message, but that's how I roll sometimes. So it says later on in chapter 23 of Luke that Jesus goes in a series of trials. Remember that? Herod isn't stationed in Jerusalem, but he happens to be in Jerusalem at this time of the trials of Jesus. Pilate and Herod are not friends, but they're kicking Jesus back and forth, and they're buddies when it comes to this because they're both blasphemous guys. Jesus goes before Herod, and the Bible says there in a book of of Mark and a book of Luke that Herod is eager to ask questions of Jesus. So he begins to ask Jesus questions, and Jesus will not speak to him. It's like you're going to hell, and that's all there is to it. That's that's literally what's going on. It was the judgment of Jesus withdraws comment. It's interesting because here you have a statement in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3. Return to me, says the Lord, and I will return to you. He's saying you better repent. Well, if Jesus is telling you, you better repent, that's really good news for you. Because it implies you can repent. If, you, if he's talking on your heart and he's, he's saying to you, it's time you got baptized and you haven't been baptized. It's time that you did this, that you should have done and you haven't done it. If he's speaking to you, then you can repent. It's like, do it. Do what he tells you to do. You can. There'll come a time for some people when there'll be silence. And that's a horrible judgment. Jesus doesn't speak to Herod anyway, but he does give the people an opportunity to repent and return. And so this is the first thing. And then there are these eight visions. They're from chapter 1, verse 7 to chapter 6 and verse 8. And they're really interesting. Read them on your own. We'll go over them in a little bit. There's the crowning of Joshua, and it has a prophetic significance to it in chapter 6, verses uh, 9 through 15. There's this question of fasting. The four messages related to that fasting in chapter 7, chapter 8. Those are really interesting. Uh, and then you get into the part that points to the far future, the two burdens, chapter 9 through chapter 14. The, let's look at the eight visions quickly. There were a vision of horses among myrtle trees, four horns and four craftsmen, a man with a measuring line, cleansing of the high priest, golden lampstand, an olive trees, flying scroll, and a woman in a basket. 
There are also a, a vision of four chariots. There are eight visions. We don't have time to go into them. You should study each one of them. They are really interesting. There's a little formula in each of the visions. He's given this vision. It's like, what's the vision mean? He asks, and in almost every case, that's seven out of the eight, he asks, what does the vision mean? And then the, he's given a definition of the vision. And all of them are good. Let me kind of go over them. These are promises with each one. Each of these corresponds with a, one of the eight visions. In one, God promises prosperity to Israel. In another, God says, I'm going to judge your enemies. In another, God says, I'm going to rebuild Jerusalem. In another, God says, I'm going to purify your priesthood, which is defiled. In another one, God says, I'm going to rebuild the temple. In another, he says, I'm going to remove sin and idolatry. In another, God says, I'm going to send peace and rest. And finally, he says, Messiah will be king and priest. These are all staggeringly wonderful promises, but he doesn't just give them. He gives them with laden with symbols you could not possibly ever forget, full of concrete stuff. If you are a musician, artist, Sunday school teacher, speaker, preacher, do not ever just lay bland propositional truth on people. Make it sing. Add illustrations. Tell stories. Draw pictures. Dramatize the truth. We're in great company when we do that. Because that's what Bible teaches. And God was the one who inspired these like big, explosive visions. You're not going to forget that. If you, have, you know, if you have a dream of a woman in a basket, you're probably going to remember that for a while. If you have a dream of a flying scroll, you're probably going to remember that for a while. But connected with all these crazy dreams and visions, which God wanted us to retain and remember, so he gave us these crazy concrete things, there were, and this was, uh, there were these, these staggeringly wonderful uh, promises. And then there are the four messages. Remember, these four messages in chapter 7 and 8 are related to the fasting. He rebukes them for their wrong motives when they fasted. A number of times in the Bible, every once in a while somebody will say, oh, look, this is a fasting passage. And it's like, well, yeah, it's a fasting passage. But what it's really saying is, it's not saying fast. It's saying shame on you for the way you fasted. Isaiah 58 is one like that. Sometimes people will wax eloquent and they will teach. They'll say, look at Isaiah 58. You know, it says you're supposed to fast like this. Isaiah 58 is, say, is not saying you're supposed to fast. Isaiah 58 is saying, shame on you for fasting and neglecting these other things. That's not the fast I wanted. I wanted you to obey me, not just go through some ritual. And this was what was going on here. So he rebukes them for their wrong motives, but immediately tells them that repentance is required and possible. So again, there's this note of hope that's always over the book of Zechariah. It's like, that was wrong, but this is how you can fix it. This is how you can change it. And this is a beautiful passage. Look in chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Go ahead and turn there. And you see here in chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, I won't read all of that, this is a picture of restoration that will happen. And you know, if you've read about Jerusalem, you've seen Jerusalem, it's like, uh, remember the Fernando Ortega song that we played, the blood of the prophet still runs in your streets, he talks about quoting the Old Testament. But there's going to come a time when old men and old women can go out on the street and they can sit down, and they can talk, and little children can play in the street. This is the picture that's given here. I am zealous for Zion. I'm in chapter 8, verse 1. I am zealous for Zion with great zeal, with great fervor. I am zealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion. I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand. Because of his great age, the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of his people in these days, will it also be marvelous to my eyes, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they will be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. This is just wonderful. The promises, he gives the promise, but he also gives it with this lovely, beautiful picture. Don't you love it? He's saying there's going to come a time when those, when those vulnerable old women and old men that have to use a cane to walk are going to be out on the streets in Jerusalem and they're going to be talking to one another and the little children are going to be playing. It's going to be a place of peace and safety and order and beauty and security. That's what he's, it's a beautiful promise. And then there are, he changes the fast into feast. He says to them, shame on you for the way you fasted. You should never have done that. Repent. And after you repent, he says, I'm going to institute some feast for you. I want you to have great celebrations. This is what our God is like. He wants the people to have these celebrations. They're so beautiful. Look at chapter 8, verse 19. 
uh, the word of the Lord came of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. For the house of Judah, therefore, love and truth and peace. Change your feasts to fa- or fasts to feast. Yeah, I, I like to say this, you know, if God tells you to fast, you better fast. Of course, what he does in the New Testament, he allows us to fast. But if he tells you to feast, you better feast. Remember how Peter on the roof says, I want you to eat. He goes, I can't. It's like, don't you tell me you're not, that not, you're not eating when I tell you to eat. Sometimes he commands us to be serious and sober and repent. And other times he commands us to celebrate. It's kind of neat. That's the way our God is. There are these four messages. Now, there are two more things, and it's a chunk of the rest. It's in chapters 9 through 14. It's the two burdens. And the, the first burden is the rejection of Messiah at the first advent. This is the part that often people in New Testament times overlook, that when Jesus would come in his first advent, he would come as a suffering servant, and he would be rejected. They didn't see this. This is in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. You can see it right in the same passage. You know, it's like he's coming in riding on a, don- a donkey, and then he's ruling over the entire world in the next short verse. But that isn't what happened, is it? He came in riding on a donkey, first advent. Later on, he's going to come back. He's going to rule over everything. But in between verses 9 and 10, you have the church age in there, the rejection of Messiah at the first advent, and the acceptance of Messiah um, at the second advent. And that's given that it's described in, in, in very beautiful, beautiful terms there in, in chapters 12 through 14. And so, as I said, Zechariah is chiefly a message of hope. It's a message to inspire people. Let me give some implications. God wants his people to have a bright future. What is it we sang? In great is thy faithfulness. Um, how's that go? And bright hope for tomorrow, right? Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Is that how it goes? I can't say it unless I sing the whole song. Maybe we should start over. That's what God wants us to have. He wants us to have a bright hope for tomorrow. Now listen, we're in our 78th anniversary as a church. I walk in and I look at that A.D. 1934. It wasn't when the building was built, but it was when the people assembled here and covenanted together with God to have a Bible-preaching church. And, and, and speaking for me and speaking for the other leaders, that I know we just want to be faithful to God, to the Bible. We want to win as many people as we can. We want to disciple as many people as we can. We, want, we, are, we are happy to exhaust ourselves in the ministry and the service of God in order that God would be honored and that he would be glorified and that this place would do what this place has done and more over those years. And so it is a wonderful thing to look back it is. That's a part of Christian faithfulness is to look back and to say, look what God has done. Thank you, God, for what you've done. He commands us to do that. And, and, um, and, and, um, and then, but, there, but if we only look back, there's a, great, there's a great danger to that. If all we do is look at what happened in the past, there's a great danger to that. God requires a faithfulness of us, and he inspires a faithfulness in us, and he promises things are going to happen in the future. We should look as our greatest days are yet ahead, and our greatest responsibilities and opportunities are still ahead of us. And that's the way we need to look at this thing. We look back to say, yes, I know what my God is like and what he's done in the past, and if he's done that in the past, he can do it in the future, but we had better look in the future. I'll tell you why. There were a whole bunch of people in our church today that didn't know anything about evangelist past or care. There are a whole bunch of people. You know what they are? They're people who are hanging on to life by a thread of desperation. And if they don't meet Jesus Christ here, they are really going to have trouble. And that's people who were here. Think of the scores, the dozens, the thousands of people precious to God, treasures to God that live all around here. And we have a paid-for building that seats a thousand, and we have a bunch of Christian people that have been taught the Word of God. We do not have any excuse. And I will do my best, and we will do our best to show you exactly how to do that. I would just suggest, here's what happened in the Old Testament. Here comes uh, Haggai, and here comes Zechariah, and they hear from God, and they go tell the people, here's what you should do. You haven't been doing it. The temple's in ruins. You're good folks, but you haven't been doing that. You need to repent, and you need to rebuild, and when you do that, God's blessing is going to come, and you won't believe what that's going to look like in the future. Your greatest days ahead, even though you guys have not fasted the right way, and even though you've sinned like your fathers, I'm still going to restore you, and your best days are going to be in the future. The whole message of Zechariah is, your best days are going to be in the future that's what he's saying so what do the people do the people do it they say all right we will and they rise up and they build and god blesses them 
And that can happen right here and now in your lifetime, in this place, on this very spot, with the people that you know this can happen. God gives a message. The message is very clear. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel. Tell people about Jesus. Get to know them like you've never done before. Get to know people who don't know the Lord. Get to know people who don't know the Lord. Broaden your circle of influence. And then love them. How hard is that? Really love them. Really like them. Really love them. Really like them. Really care about them. Really care about them. Invest in them. Care about them. They will know that you do. Get involved in their lives. Learn their stories. Do it in the way that's unique to you. We're all different, you know. But do that in the way that's unique to you. And then ask God how you can either get the gospel to them or get them to the gospel. And there are some creative ways that that can happen. That's not rocket science. That is not. We can do that. We can do that. And I just want to encourage you. I think God has set the table for a time like right now in this church. I think He has set the table. I'm convinced that's true. And when I saw what happened on Easter Sunday, I went home and I just thought to myself, wow, that was cool. Got almost 800 people here on Sunday morning and listening and, 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 and watching, paying attention. And all the stories that were connected with that. And then it's just a fraction. And then this morning you saw just the people that are coming in. They're hungry. They're open. They're listening. We have... I think six new members that we're going to vote on tonight. Some of them just brand new Christians that came because somebody included them and loved them and invited them and a whole bunch of people did different things to show, show them love. God is at work here. But our greatest days, and this is what we ought to say on Anniversary Sunday, we ought to look back and say, thank God for what He did in the past. Thank God for what He provided in the past. Thank God for who He sent and, and who was here to be used in the past. Now that we've done that and we've, we've, we have indulged in the luxury of enjoying the past, it's time for us to turn boldly to the future and to say, all right, God, what are you going to do? Think about the lost person that's out there and they know nothing about our past. They only know they're desperately messed up. Their kids are messed up. Their marriage is messed up. Maybe they're broken. I think there are a lot of people, and I'm ranting now, but I think there are just a whole lot of people out there that are on drugs and alcohol. I just believe it. I believe a lot more people than we know are on drugs and alcohol. And while most evangelical Christians are arguing about whether it's okay to drink or not, they got people that are in bondage to alcohol. What if we had meetings here for people to how to get out of bondage to alcohol? And we had testimonies on this platform of people who used to be in bondage to alcohol, and Jesus Christ set them free, and they became a good dad again, and a good husband again, or a good wife again. Wouldn't that be awesome? There are people who will never set foot in church because they think, God knows who I sleep with and all the stuff that I've done and I'm not a church person. We need to let that person know, hey, just because we put a tie on and we dress up and we sing and we smile, we're happy, we have one wife, doesn't mean we don't have a dark, shameful past too. There's a place for you here. Now, welcome. Come on in. We'll help you get free of that. When people realize that, that there is a way to get free of their guilt and their shame and their bondage and their fear of death, if they w- realize there's a way to raise a family for God, there's a way to love your wife and be tender and loving to her. You know how many women there are that are out there, and many of you women, you know this, and some of you men do too. Do you have any idea the women who are out there within the toss of a frisbee of our church, within a drive of our church, who have been just terribly mistreated and so desperately sad and so disappointed with the men in their lives. Sometimes their dads, their brothers, and their husbands. And they're, not, and, and they're broken. And it, what if we could find a way to say to women like that, we empathize with you, we understand you. The feminists are the only ones who are doing that. And their message is not true. And so those women get kind of locked into something that, What if we could say to those women, there are women here who will listen to you, who will understand you, who will help you. And there are men here who will help hold your husband accountable for the way that he's living and challenge him and say, hey, there but for the grace of God go I. I once did those same things, but God set me free from that. Do you see a vision for this? I think we can do church like we've done church, and we can like it, and we can say it's pretty cool, we got all of our friends here, or we can like bust down the walls and go get them. Amen. Yeah. I hear you both. Yeah. You're thinking about that. Now, you, you know, I know what your silence means. Your silence means, I'm with you, Pastor. You're going to have to give me a little bit more detail. And I will. And we will. As God is just giving us, and He is, giving this detail. And I, I think it's a beautiful thing to realize this. You know, today, our hearts are heavy. I, I didn't know Bud like you did. Pastor Hall, I didn't know him like you did. But 
because he was here for a long time, I, I think 22 years is a, is, is a big deal in one place. 22 years. That says a lot for him. That says a lot for you. 22 years. Good for you. And good for him. And good for God. Not in that order. Amen? And then to be 53 and leave kids that you didn't get to see married and you get to see grandkids and all of that. That's just tragic in the human way. It just, it just hurts. Think about it. it. It does help us to think our, our days are numbered and we ought to seize every single moment that we can to do what really matters. And everything I heard about Bud when he was here was putting together stuff to reach lost people and train kids and, and that's what we want to be all about. I want to challenge you. In the Bible, the Zechariah, it's a kind of a cryptic, kind of almost mysterious reference to Zechariah in, in Matthew in 23 that talks about his death. Isn't it interesting that in a book that's just all full of hope about a bright future, the guy who gives the message dies in a violent way. This morning, the man who is the forerunner of Jesus Christ and faithful and godly, he dies a tragic death. He spills his blood. And, and I think it, it's a reminder to us, and I say this with, with uh, real uh, sobriety. I don't think we're going to get to do in our church what God has called us to do without sacrifice, work, changing things. Suffering, changing our schedules, changing the way we look at things, doing some things different than we did before, sacrificing things that we liked. I just don't think it's going to happen if it's just like business as usual. I don't think so. I don't think that's how God does stuff. I think he's going to say, and I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't be freaked out about it, because like, I, I think once your heart gets caught up with something, you're willing to give your time to it. You know, Once your heart is caught up, you're like, yeah, I'll give an extra night of the week. If I know that I'm discipling this new Christian, <laughs> I, I, I had a guy that I got kind of that came our way, and as a result of it, one of the members here inviting them, and he came to the Lord, and and I said to him, like I do a lot of people, I give them a little something to do and see if they do it, and I determine whether I'm going to spend more time with them based on if they're doing what I suggest. And I said to him, well, hey, sometime you might want to read a book of John, get back with me, and. So he calls me, he goes, I read the book of John, when are we going to get together? We get together, and I said, I think you ought to buy yourself a good study Bible. What do you recommend? I said, I'd go to Inner City Christian Bookstore, I'd buy a leather John MacArthur study Bible. This is an investment of 50 to $75, you know, it's discounted there, it's a great place to go. But I said that next time he walks in with this huge leather-bound John MacArthur study Bible, I'm like, yes, yes! It's like catching a big bass for a pastor, you know what I'm saying? You're like, Yes! Guy has this huge John MacArthur study Bible. It's leather, people. The man is serious about this. And then he's got, you know, I was saying, so tell me what you think about the book of John. He goes, yeah, I read it a couple of times and I got some questions. <laughs> it's kind of cool. You'll, you'll hear more of that story. You'll see that, more of that story on a video because it'll be soon before baptism. I'm just saying there's a, I mean, there's a whole lot more out there who need to know the Lord. And uh, thank you for letting me. What, what you're going to do in the business meeting here in a moment is you're going to look at you're going to look at, um, we're going to talk about a few things in business meeting, and you're going to look at there, and you're going to look down the line of the numbers, and you're going to go, hmm, the numbers in our church for 14 years have been going slowly down. Did you know that? I hate saying it. It's like real slow, but it, it kind of tracks the population of the area, and the finances and the size of the church kind of tracks the population of the area, and just real slowly and steadily, a little bit by little bit by little bit down. When I came as a pastor, it was kind of new, and so it spiked just for a little bit, then it started going back down again. I've got to tell you, that disappointed me. Because I kind of thought, it'd be so cool to just like be the new pastor I come. We fill the place three or four times over, and we all have a great time. You know, God says, no, Ken, that's not how it's going to work. I'm going to afflict you. I'm going to afflict you until you care so deeply about this, these people that you can't sleep at night. And I want you to join me in that holy insomnia, would you? Join me in that and say, you start thinking about your neighbors. Think about them. You know, 
You know them? Okay, you love them? Okay, you got to get the gospel to them in a gentle way and because they're going to go to hell. You can't let that happen without them knowing about Jesus first, right? Think about that. So you have 600 members, almost 600 members spreading out everywhere. So when you see those numbers, you know, if you're like I am, you look at that and you go, it's not all about numbers. I know that. You know, you and I both, we understand that. It's not all about numbers, but, it, but it's inexcusable for us, you know, not to say, okay, God, I still, my heart is still beating. Am I harping on you now? Yeah. It, uh, my heart is still beating, and so I can still tell one more person about the Lord. And, and you know, a lot of them are going to tell you no. A lot of them are going to reject you. Stony soil, right? A lot of them, that's one of the stories that Jesus told. Many people are going to not want to hear the gospel, and many people who hear it are going to reject it. But there will be those who will go by that John MacArthur study Bible, and they will get baptized, and they'll raise their kids for the Lord Somebody was on Facebook last night and said to Bud Hall's family, thank you for leading me to the Lord. Can you tell me what in the world would be a better tribute than that? You led me to the Lord. Who are you going to lead to the Lord? Why don't you ask God, give me somebody, Lord, give me somebody. And you might say, God, I'm dumb. Give me somebody that's easy pickings, you know. I'm really not that sharp, so you know, drop one in my lap, Lord. I'm going to have to have help here. This person's going to have to come and ask me, you know. You know, I, I think he might even do that. And so here tonight, we've got to get to our, <laughs> we got to get to our meeting. So I'm going to stop talking, which you thought I was never going to do. And I'm going to pray. And then we're going to uh, jump into our meeting here. We'll give you five minutes to kind of shuffle about. And then we'll get into our quarterly business meeting. We have some things we need to talk about. Let's pray together. Now, Lord, tonight we thank you for this encouraging, this powerful uh, truth of your word uh, i pray lord that you would help us as we look to the future to realize that one day your feet will touch the mount of olives and it will cleave apart and you will come to the defense of your people israel an actual nation of people who will regather in belief and in faith and and then lord we will come with you the saints that will, will come with you the saints from heaven as you said and that you will establish a reign upon the earth. Help us to know the reality of that, to believe it, and to live like we believe it, and to invest like we believe it. And uh, Lord, I pray that our, our greatest days as a church would be the ones ahead, and that we would build on the faithfulness of those who in the past have been faithful so that we can see people come to know you that, uh, that are far from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, we'll see you back here in about five minutes. Okay.